Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. reflect on 2020 and plan for 2021, I oscillate between excited and hopeful and overwhelmed. It's been a year. Last December, I was just starting to submit my artwork to open calls. I was teaching four days per week at two elementary schools, getting into the swing of TAB, teaching for artistic behavior, and being on a cart at one school. I had shared the idea of a podcast as a way to force myself to make it a reality. I, like all of us, had no idea how 2020 would change everything. It has been a challenging year, to say the least. Those of you who have suffered through illness and loss, my heart goes out to you. All of us have upended our lives to some extent whether teaching online, on a cart, in a mask, or losing work. Some of you, like me, have also been helping your children through online school, while somehow continuing your own work. It's a lot. Many of us have also begun to more directly confront racism, and I hope this winter break has provided a little bit of downtime just to de-stress. What was your life like a year ago? How has your art practice changed? What about your teaching practice? I've been thinking about all these things. While I have no delusions that things will dramatically change when we wake up on January 1st, there are reasons to be hopeful. Vaccines are coming, as is new leadership here in the U.S., which at the very least is far more competent and willing to listen to experts than the absolute mess that we've had. I find it helpful to look back and reflect on successes. So what are you proud of? For me, I break my work really into three areas, teaching, art making, and podcasting. As a teacher, I'm proud of how I completely revamped my curricula multiple times, learned new tech skills, and continue to improve my videos. As an artist, I'm so proud of how I really went from zero to 60 this year. In 2018, I started making art again after a three-year hiatus. Pregnancy and early motherhood were really hard and all-consuming. In 2019, I started applying to open calls, and in 2020, I had work in 13 shows, did a few studio visits and artist talks, sold some work, and will be a represented artist with Stay Home Gallery in 2021. I developed techniques in a new-to-me material, and I'm feeling excited and confident about the direction of my work. Now, no matter what you've accomplished this year, take a moment to just reflect on what you're proud of. 
whether you barely made it to the studio amidst the overwhelm of teaching through a pandemic, or maybe you kicked it into gear, you found yourself with extra time, and you really forged ahead with your art career. As for podcasting, I'm still a little bit amazed that I actually made this happen. I've spoken to over 40 artists this year. A few will be released in the new year. I am so grateful to all of these artists and honored to share a part of their stories here. Every conversation has inspired me and pushed me to keep going with all three areas of work, teaching, art, and podcasting. I hope these conversations also inspire you. And you, my amazing listeners, have also inspired me. I'm just blown away by the encouragement and feedback I've received. I love hearing from you, and I am so, so grateful for your support. This 40th episode will be the last one of 2020, and I'll be sharing some of my favorite moments from the episodes released this year. Before I get to that, I wanted to also share a little bit about the ways this podcast has grown into more than a podcast. When I dreamed up the idea a year ago, I really wanted a way to highlight artists who teach kids and bring a level of respect to our art practice that I felt was lacking, while also valuing the passion we bring to teaching. As the world moved online, and I saw more and more online art platforms popping up, I thought, maybe naively, that creating an online gallery can't be that hard. <laughs> I used to do web design as a side gig, but, you know, this is actually a lot harder than just designing a website. I reached out to Maria Coit, an artist, middle school art teacher, mom of three, and founder of Curated for Kids. And we dove into starting an online exhibition platform. We curated an exciting exhibit in the spring, featuring nine incredible artists and offering lesson plans to accompany the exhibit. We just wrapped up our first open call, and it was amazing seeing submissions come in. I cannot wait to share these artists and artworks with you in January. Our juror, the amazing Chloe Alexander, is looking through submissions now, and we'll be sharing more soon. I'll also be sharing some tips for applying to open calls on Instagram, so make sure you're following us at Teaching Artists Podcast. Having this platform to share artwork and support artists is such a dream. In addition to continuing the interviews and hosting more exhibitions, I'll continue to feature artists as a way to share more work. If you'd like to be featured or apply to be interviewed or submit work to an open call, you can see all of our opportunities at teachingartistpodcast.com slash opportunities. Okay, so I've pulled quotes from several episodes to share bits of all 39 of these conversations. I've also been looking back and wanted to share some interesting commonalities I noticed. Many of the teaching artists I spoke to followed tab or choice-based methodologies in their classrooms. Now, this may just reflect my own bias, but I found it interesting in talking with them how many talked about needing to treat students as artists with autonomy as they themselves would desire in their own art making. 
it felt like being active in the studio often goes hand in hand with empowering children to also be active in their classroom studios. We talked about systemic racism, dismantling white supremacy, creating equitable classrooms, and the power of stories. We talked about the struggles to balance time between teaching and art making and often parenting. We talked about money and selling work or not selling work. I also learned that teaching artists love tacos, <laughs> but really, who doesn't? Now let's hear from them. I love teaching on a platform of failure. And my kids are, you know, when, when they hear the word failure as these very, these kids are awesome and they're doing great work and they're very high achieving and they hear the word failure and it's automatically like a worst case scenario. Trying to shift their minds to think about failure as an opportunity is really one of the best challenges I have as a teacher. And I think that's a role that I'm really grateful that I get to play and sort of teasing out and playing with that idea of really the word failure, which in academia or in school, I think is a really scary thing for parents to hear, mm -hmm. administrators to hear, kids to hear. But I like sit inside of it and I love it because you know I do it every single day. I do it as a parent. I do it as a teacher. I do it you know, as a partner and mm -hmm. what is to be gained from something not working out the way we thought it would. You know, the best art I've ever made has happened because of an accident. I think our kids are pushed so hard in school, even if like the little, the little babies, the little kindergartners, they have so much they have to perform. Right. That it's, it's a huge motivator for me, like to make sure that they have a, a safe space in their art room where they can just be themselves. They can, they can experiment. They don't have to perform these pressures, you know, they just kind of get to, to realize the relaxing quality that can be in art. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it's just a big motivator for me to let, like, teach the kids to chill out a little bit. I try to be really like aware of how mm -hmm. my own way of making art and like my like aesthetic preferences affect my class. Like I try to, I almost give us like an artistic bias, like, okay, that's the bias that I'm bringing to the classroom. And um, sometimes I'll notice like the prompts that I give a class for like a sketchbook assignment that I think of is like, oh, it's kind of like innocuous. So this could go anywhere, but then the students will make work that they aren't looking at my artwork, but they'll make work that's like a plant that has eyeballs for the feet. And I'm like, oh, that looks like something I would draw. Yeah. And it's like, there's something merging over. You have to be ready to learn more when it comes to students as people. Try and choose subject matter that you think the kids are really going to engage with. Try and choose artists that the kids are really going to see themselves reflected in and really create a, a curriculum that is really diverse. And I think that's one thing that I could have done more of when I was younger, but I've learned so much since then. And now I kind of center my curriculum around what I think the students are going to be interested in and what's going to engage them and, you know, making sure that all of my kids can see themselves really reflected in, the, in what's being taught. I went into it with this is the expectation I want and this is the expectation I'm going to get. And for the most part, mm -hmm. it worked. But I found that there were kids that just weren't expressing themselves or growing enough. So I just started asking them, what if you did this? Or if a student came to me and had an idea that was just a little out, more outside of the box than I was comfortable with, 
I would recognize like, oh, I'm not comfortable with this, but why? Like, what's wrong with this? And I would Mm -hmm. just say to the kid, okay, please go try that. And it was okay. And it was so much better than what the outcome was that I wanted. And I realized that I needed to give the kids more space to have, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's art. It's supposed, we're supposed to give them space. (laughs) Yeah. And that was the one thing that I don't remember getting in college. I really enjoy the growth in middle school. Mm -hmm. I love the projects you can do with them, like from sixth grade to eighth grade. There's so much growth and I can really help students that really are into it. And that's their thing. Mm -hmm. And it's the awkward phase for kids, too. So it's like, (laughs) for me, I I struggled in school growing up. I'm LD, learning disabled. Mm -hmm. So with mathematics, reading and writing. So I struggled in school. I was in special ed classes all the way up to high school and stuff. And the only thing that got me through it was my art classes because that's where I shined. And that must give you a different perspective too, working with the kids. Oh yeah. Like I'm I'm like for kids that were special ed, I'm like, I really like heart to heart with them. Like I totally understand how they struggle. And like, yeah, when, when they, when they other, like their general teacher will come to me like, they're doing so great in your class. I'm like, that's because that's, their thing that's what Mm -hmm. they're good at like they're struggling with academics but art is their thing it's so personal for me like I always wanted to be that teacher where my classroom was the same place Uh everyone can shine even if you struggle with art I can help you one-on-one to get you to be happy with what you're making this is just who I am and you know when you fake it the kids can tell There's one of my third graders I'm getting to know, and he doesn't feel confident. And he was one that made made a great painting, and then he got like, you know, he made a painting, and then he got like really frustrated and kind of scribbled over it, and and so I was like, okay. So with Fabriclandia, I had like these squares, but he had to do it in lines. So he had to cut rectangles and strip. It had to be how his sketch was. So I feel like he's given me a clue as to how I can help guide him. And so that felt kind of good. His technique, his approach to the project, how he had to approach it is where we start. Yeah. You know, it's like, I kind of have always felt like I learned from yoga, mm-hmm. even though I don't really do yoga anymore. A yoga teacher would never send you away. Like, Oh, you can't touch your toes. Well, come back to me when you can. Uh-huh. So like an art teacher, mm, you're not an artist because you can't draw a straight line or whatever. Right. Uh, we just take it from where you are yeah. and then we go from there. I ended up having kids, stayed home for about 12 years and I started doing art again. And then I started teaching little kids in my kitchen oh. during the day. And yeah. the little kids would go, is this your kitchen? Do you cook in here? And I'm like, no, we make art in here. <laughs> this is the art room. I was told that the supply budget would be like one number. And it ended up being like half of that. <laughs> and the first number was probably not enough anyway. <laughs> no, it was completely not enough. So it like a lot of it was like out of my pocket, right? As I'm sure you know. I'm sure hundreds of people know. <laughs> like nodding along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was like out of pocket. I'm like in this cart. My my car is not my classroom. <laughs> I had like three days in a row where it would be like 
15 second grade classes, like, you know, it's like day after day so that you go through them, yeah. you have this lesson plan and then the classes get better and better. Cause you're really, cause you're like really nailing down this lesson right. plan and then you make, you can make adjustments class to class and, and then, um, mm-hmm. so that's been, that's been really good. It's hard. Like I only have one fifth grade class, so I'll teach that class. And then depending how it went, it's like, well, there goes that assignment. I can't, I don't have a, you know, a test right. test class. Usually, you know, my Monday morning second grade class, they're like, they're like, unfortunately <laughs> like the test group. And then like I change, right. always change things quite a bit by the, yeah. by the house, see how it goes. The powers that be said to us teachers, you won't teach online. And we said, uh, okay. And we did it. And that's pretty amazing. I've been teaching like an artsy comics class through the armory with oh, seven, cool. seven to 11 year olds. And they just seem pretty unfazed and they seem pretty excited to be making comics. Like even though it's, it's kind of strange to be doing it remotely. Yeah, And uh, I think once the mandate came down and it was like mid-March, my college class at Art Center, which was graphic novel focused, Mm-hmm. switched to online too and that was surprisingly like smooth uh, i think because it's like a, a college class and it's discussion based i think the big transition the tough challenge for me was like how do i teach a hands-on project through zoom right which i know you've had to deal with as well yeah. so that was that was the toughest thing for me like the discussion stuff seemed like it lent itself pretty well to zoom but mm-hmm. showing step-by-step instructions on how to make something was a little more difficult did you do any that were more like asynchronous videos? I did with with uh, PS Arts. Yeah, it's, it's hard to even keep track myself. So, <laughs> right. whoever, if anyone's listening to this, they're like, "What is what does he do?" And like, what? How many different jobs? And <laughs> right, piecing it all together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to I have to remind myself every morning. Like, what am I doing today? I, <laughs> there are a lot of things that have changed. You know, just even being mindful of like how close you are to someone, like proximity, just how, Mm -hmm. how close you are when you're having a conversation with a student or how long you're, you're remaining close to that student, even if you're trying to support them and help them, you know, learn something or revise something or like problem solve or whatever. Right. So I think just that like mental awareness kind of changes. I mean, we've, we notice that in our daily interactions too, when you're going to the grocery store, when you're you know, walking around or whatever, everyone's just very aware of that proximity, which Mm -hmm. is something new because we're still, I have still a pretty large class size. It's definitely been cut down. I usually have like 24 students Mm -hmm. in my room. So it's still a lot of people, but I think we... We have sanitization processes. We Everyone's required to wear a mask at all times. Mm-hmm. The school administrators have been really good about the contact tracing and, you know, removing students from school if there's any chance that they may have been exposed to the virus. So there's a lot that's happening to ensure that our students are staying, are staying safe mm-hmm. and that our teachers are staying safe. So once you like kind of fall into that routine, teaching is still teaching. Mm-hmm. You're still interacting with the students. You're still problem solving on a daily basis. You're still, you still have some of the same issues that you would have had regardless. So we are now, I think we just finished week seven, maybe of school. Mm-hmm. I think it was week seven. <laughs> so I feel like I'm very much in the routine now mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't feel it's the new normal uh, or whatever, whatever normal is. It's something that I've kind of gotten used to. So I think we've figured out a way to make it work.
One thing that I love about EC or early childhood is that it's really process-based. Yeah. And I know a lot of art is obviously, but it's so in your face when you're teaching three and four-year-olds and you just really begin to see like, yeah, this is about play and exploration. And so their like excitement about making like completely changed the way I approached my studio. Uh. Um, So while it was a huge shift in like what I was used to teaching, it just kind of really opened me up to like whole new range of possibilities that I wasn't really considering before. Yeah. So it was good. I'm not going to say it was easy. (laughs) I mean, you have so much energy, (laughs) but they're so fun. They don't edit themselves. Yeah. And they just, yeah. They also think you're a rock star, which really feeds into your (laughs) ego. teaching it has to come from empathy and compassion i think there's nothing that takes more courage than facing a blank canvas and you're asking kids to do this on your terms and so knowing that they're in a safe space like where they can feel comfortable and trust you like okay you're not gonna judge me you're not gonna be harsh you're here to like be my guide to encourage yeah yeah so that's where i always knew i wanted to be the art teacher that i didn't have we want to tell the children, you're an artist and don't be afraid to fail, you know, yeah, and you know, try yeah. it and then you fail and then try. But that's, I think that's part of the reason why we need the step-by-step thing is because when you get older, you know, you tell the kid, well, if you fall down the bike, you'll just get back up and keep riding. But then when you're an adult, it's like, if I fall down the bike, that's not really an option. It's going to hurt too much. Yeah. And if I fall down trying to make this art, it's just too painful for me mm-hmm. and I can't go there anymore. So I think that's why we, we're not, we tell the kids it seems i was like well you gotta fail you have to fall and you gotta get back up and keep trying but then adults get to a point where they, they they're unwilling to keep failing yeah. because in order to keep growing and, and actually any kind of an artist you have to be in this constant state of like failing and and, mm-hmm. and failing better i think sometimes they expect things to just be right the first time artistically mm-hmm. and so it's it's hard for them to break out of it needs to look this way. If they say, I can't do that, I can't do that, and then you just, all you need to do is say, you can't do that yet. Mm-hmm. That word yet, once you add that, it opens you up. It opens your mind up to so many other possibilities. I think the big thing is, is to find what you're passionate about, where your interests are, and then, then think about your lesson Mm -hmm. and then think about it as two paths, Mm -hmm. like how to bring in your passion to teach your lesson. And as teachers, we know even at whatever age you are, we always need a guide for something that's new to us. It's okay to learn from other people. We should always be learning. Yeah, this is why I was teaching art. Right. Because I am an artist. (laughs) You really are an artist. It's important that children know that artists, they don't just exist in a a vacuum or mm-hmm. hidden away in a museum or, you know, that they're live and vibrant and in your community. We really need to learn how to have difficult conversations like this and how to talk about illness and not be afraid. And mm-hmm. a project really helps to do that. So you're not bringing the institution into your home. Rather, you're using the context of your home for learning to emerge. 
once I started giving myself grace about my weaknesses Mm -hmm. and letting people know up front that, you know, I am dyslexic, but I can function just like anyone else. Just give me a chance. And there's also things that I can see more clearly because of the deficit in one area, there are heightened things in other areas. There's been a lot of times that I've just felt so grateful that I feel like I stumbled mm-hmm. into my passion, like another passion in my life, like something uh. that was kind of always missing, which is like a really mm-hmm. powerful feeling to have. Education is is that. It's what's left after the information is gone. It's the feeling that you're left with. Mm. That's the part that endures and that allows you to carry your education on through adulthood, I hope. Yeah. Having these types of conversations and pushing that needle and advocating for ourselves. And I think that's, it's all really good. This cultural idea of an artist is a person who sacrifices everything for their craft, is obsessed, is nothing else but an artist. And I really feel like that's unfair. I think it's unfair. It's unrealistic. And it's kind of, you know, it's a real male-oriented viewpoint. While growing up, art was always a hobby, but that was just something I loved to do. But I never thought it could be anything more than that, like not even in my wildest dreams. Uh, Yeah, I didn't go to art school. uh, And if you ask me why, even though I loved art so much, because first of all, where I grew up, the education system was designed in such a way that after elementary school, art was not even a subject. It didn't exist. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) it didn't exist in middle school and high school. So as a child, you didn't even know that someone can be an artist, you know, and I'm not exaggerating. What is that connection between idea and execution? And how does that then become art? And then who owns that? Like who has ownership over that? So all of that gets gets kind of muddy and interesting to think about. You have to make a lot of crap Mm -hmm. before you get to the beautiful work. And, you know, we sometimes we're afraid to get started because we don't want to go through the pain of what it feels like to make that crap. Yeah. But then the more the more crap that you make, (laughs) the closer you get to the beautiful things. And I feel like creativity never runs dry. It's like the more you the more you use it, the more you have. Mm -hmm. The more you exercise those muscles, the more that spills out of you. (laughs) If you have a cheese with control and you like to control everything, you should do some pottery Mm. because it'll help you sort of release and relax around the control issues. Yeah. Especially since with pottery, you know, it's a little more difficult to have full control. We don't have to be in these tight little boxes anymore. And in fact, none of us actually fit in those boxes. And we can have these tools and, and you know, some guidance and encouragement to start to take things in new directions and see what else we're capable of. I mean, it's just endless what's possible. We spend so much time being hard on ourselves and not being happy with the way we look or with what size and shape we are or what we're doing. Once you get sick, 
that stuff doesn't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. And if that's something I can give to somebody, that's my gift to you, is that start your self-acceptance now. I'm one of those artists who's not above stealing ideas from other people. (laughs) I'm all about like, how do you steal an idea that you really love, but how do I make it my own? I have a studio space in my classroom, and so I've got projects always going at school. I've got projects going at home, and, you know, those got sketchbooks and things, and I try to make time to make art every day if I can of my own. As a kid, you kind of drawing as a kind of escape where you're kind of going into your own world and... Um... And not as uh, I was planning to become an artist. Most of the time I was just drawing and then I ended up good at drawing. And then I thought, well, this might be the only way for me to make a living. I'm not really good at anything else. So I went to the art school route. And then you go to art school and you realize, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make a living with uh, the art thing. So I guess let me try the teaching thing a little bit. It's important for artists to step out of the studio and do that, do something. Right. Yeah. To get out of out of your own head a little bit as well. Absolutely. Artists can help other artists out. We can support each other. It's not a big Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, I'm trying to get the job and I want this commission stuff. It's not that competitive. Like with social media nowadays, a lot of people can see our arts and there's always you have that group of people that, that love your art and will buy your art and continue to buy your art. If you want to make art, you've got to be curious, right? You have to, what is the question of your work? If I'm dealing with juniors and seniors who are creating their first series of works, you know, my first question is to them, well, what's your question? What do you want to know? What do you want to learn? You know, if you can identify that question, then we know we, we have a direction to think about what your artwork is going to do this year. When I realized that painting wasn't my thing, I thought to myself, well, what what am I interested in? And that's when I thought, you know, why don't I learn how to sew? It's, you know, never, never too late, right? And I think there's some things that we always tell ourselves that they're too difficult to learn how to do. And so when I got a sewing machine, it sat in a box for like a year because I was just like, ah, it's going to be too difficult to learn how to do. And you know, the diff, the most difficult thing is just getting over yourself, you know, just mm-hmm. pushing yourself out of the way is the most difficult yeah. part. And once you've kind of done that, then you realize, oh man, this was so easy. I should have done this a long time ago. For the longest time, I thought that I just shouldn't be creating. I should be focusing on my lessons. It was a waste of time to be working on these things that were a, quote, distraction, taking me away from planning out projects and stuff like that. It's not a distraction. I mean, even if it doesn't tie in with what you're teaching, it's just, it's a form of self self care. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that we have to make sure that we keep ourselves in mind and our passions in mind and keep pushing towards those and keep pursuing those. You know, we can't let that go. Even if it's just sitting down for a little while and creating something small, Mm -hmm. something that just is satisfying to you and you alone, it'll make you a happier person and a happier teacher because of it. You get a lot of rejection anyway. It takes a certain hard shelledness to persevere, but just keep pushing it, keep pushing at it until the door opens. The definition of a mistake is challenging because for most of us in art, that's what the beauty is. It's Mm -hmm. the nuance. No artistic effort should go wasted. Mm -hmm. So I never throw away paper. 
I never beat myself up when I spend a bunch of time doing something and it doesn't come out the way I want it to, which as a printmaker, I'm learning even from like master printers that's half the process of something going wrong just because mm-hmm. of the chemistry that's involved with a lot of print processes. Yeah. Um, it's just something that happens. So yeah, I never get rid of anything because all of that stuff can be valuable later on. You just never know until it happens. I, I love the function of art. I love mm-hmm. my art to have some sort of function as well as, as beauty, of course. Yeah. Of course, not everything is functional that I create. I do sculptures that are not, not uh, non-functional at all. Right. But I always sort of try to incorporate some sort of functionality to my, uh, to my pieces, whether or not they use that way. Because some people actually buy my work and never really use them in that, yeah. in there <laughs> as they could be used, which is fine, you know, but at least the option is there. I kind of think of everything as a painting, like whether it's like a right. picture that I take or see on a walk or um, whatever. I'm like, oh, that'd be a good painting. I give myself every day, all day to other people. So when I'm thinking, I really want it to be a solitary investigation. And, you know, I like the process of discovery that I can have on my own. But I've also learned, I don't know how to do this. So I'm going to go to A, B, or C. Our passions change, our interests change. Mm -hmm. And forgiving yourself and just kind of following your gut is what it's all about, I think. When I come into the studio ready to work, there's so much inside ready to come out because I've been incubating ideas. My practice as an artist is about, it's not just about what I do in my studio. It's not just about making a drawing or a screen printed image or an artist book. It is about sort of recognizing the things in my life and creating situations in my life and patterns in my life that support the making. So mm-hmm. I learned this in grad school, actually, when I was working with Anne Hamilton and her husband, Michael. Uh. Yes. They were, it was so fundamentally essential to thinking about being an artist as more than just somebody who works in a studio. Mm-hmm. And everything that I learned from them was surrounding the idea, not of being an artist with capital A, I don't think, but it's about sustainability. And so one thing I learned was that learning how to make bread and the ritual of all of the parts of that process was a form of making. Yeah. Creating a garden, sitting down and having a cup of coffee by myself or with somebody that I really enjoyed talking to was part of my practice. Just moments of connection to something outside of myself was a part of my practice. So it's really Mm -hmm. about building ideas about sustainability to kind of keep me going. And also giving myself a tremendous amount of permission to not come to the studio Uh, because I have a, uh, I put a lot of pressure on myself. I yell at my kids all the time about being perfectionist, but I am the worst. I am a total perfectionist. Uh, You know, I think, you know, like there's so, I put so much pressure on myself to be good at everything that I do. And you know, that's unrealistic as a parent. I'm like, you can't be good at a, because you've never done it before. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you can't be good at it. If you go out and practice when you look at curricula as a whole it's definitely like white center like coming from a white perspective and Mm -hmm. i think the more that we show them these inspirational people of color and these heroes and you know i think that can go a long way i think we have to do (laughs) much more of it yeah 
being anti-racist in the classroom is about using current events. It's about just talking about people of color and their experiences. You know, when you hear something in the classroom about a stereotypical thing or notion that people have about someone of color, like addressing it in the moment and talking about what was said. So it's about the class culture as much as it is about the content and then culturally responsive teaching, like making sure you have posters in your classroom that represent a spectrum of people, you know, not just dead white men, right? (laughs) And things like that. So it's, it's, you can access it anywhere is what I'm saying. So it doesn't even have to be just through your content. And it does take a lot of courage. And that courage is not easy to come across. It hasn't always been easy for me. Art is not immune from racism. Racism pervades all aspects of society, you know? Yes. Yeah. And in the art making and the art history and what kind of images are we exposed to? What what kind of images are black children exposed to, you know, throughout their schooling in art, you know? So it was kind of like mm-hmm. dismantling some of that stuff too. You bring yourself into the classroom and the world is there, is present with your students. So this needs to be front and center. Focusing on empowering students with stories of power, resilience, resistance, and not to reduce Black, Indigenous, people of color to struggle because that's not their sole experience or existence. Everybody has stories to tell. Beautiful. And it's, it's a matter of getting those out. And I think even, you know, art with children, art with adults, and just generally, it's all about the story. It's about the narrative. And, you know, who gets the, yeah. the political side of that being who gets to tell your story and, you know, who, who gets to tell the stories. Right. And I think that mm-hmm. comes down to like the whole race thing also that. Who's going to tell our stories? And we want to be able to tell our stories. Right. Everybody wants to tell their own story, you know? Yeah. And everybody should get to. Yeah. And not being dictated to by the overarching, you know, story that's put out there. It's the stories that make people human. And I think the whole thing about racism Mm -hmm. is that it dehumanizes. It makes you less than a person. You know, you're just this stereotype. So I think you can start basically with creating visual narratives or, you know, written narratives about who you are. And like if you had a chance to tell the world who you are, what would you say? What, What would you say? I mean, stories are so powerful. I think they're the most effective way to persuade anybody to change their way of thinking, you know. I think art is such a powerful tool for change. And I think you can, I mean, I was even talking with kindergarten and first graders about that and they really took to the concept. So I think you can talk about that with kids of all ages. Yeah. And we should be. Yeah, absolutely. This is something we need to be talking about. And this isn't something that we should just talk to, you know, high school students or middle school students about. We can talk to elementary school students about this too. We can all think beyond our, our scope. We have our scope and we have our daily lives and we have our, our worlds that we live in. And I think it's so healthy when we can just take a leap mm-hmm. and take a look at something else and flip something upside down and say, okay, what does that look like upside down? Yeah. You know, what does that look like from the back mm-hmm. or from the side? You know, how can I look at this in a different way? I'm their first experience with the actual black person in real life. 
You know what I mean? I'm yeah. a lot of parents first experience with a black person in real life, mm. you know, and I'm not like this. I may look a certain way, but I'm not like this rough and gruff, violent human being. I'm a whole entire person with complexities. I'm silly. I'll sing. Mm-hmm. I, I walk around camp with a tutu on. Brown, brown and black people are everyday people just living this life and doing the best we can like everybody else. I needed to be around people who look like me. And there were, not to say that there weren't people like that at CalArts, but I also then started like noticing that even so folks who maybe just visually look like you, they grow up very differently, right? Especially if they Mm -hmm. grew up in like a, you know, like in the suburbs or like higher socioeconomic status, even though like maybe there were like other Latinas in, in my classes and things like that, we didn't necessarily grow up the same. So like our mind sets were like very different. So I ended up wanting to like leave and I was like trying to like figure out how to do that without like dropping out of school. Teaching art by, I guess by and about, you know, people of the global majority and Mm -hmm. allowing those people's own voices to speak, not only literally speak through artist statements and videos that you can pair with the work, but to speak through the art. So when Mm -hmm. art is about the self or society or the world or about social issues, then you are getting a taste of that person's perspective and that person, Mm -hmm. that individual person, not this token of a culture that I'm trying to sprinkle onto my class. You know, if you're looking for an art lesson, there's so much centered around Monet and Van Gogh. It makes it very easy. But when you really have to dig to teach about a contemporary artist or an artist of color, it's so much harder. For the last few years, we have been focusing solely on Black artists because kids in school, like if you're lucky enough to still be in a school that has art, you're going to learn about Picasso and Matisse Mm -hmm. and like all of those people. And none of those people have any connection to my kids and that means my kids don't have any connection to their work and so Mm -hmm. I didn't want them to look at art and see it as something other as opposed to the art being something that's inclusive make your projects centered around what's happening now and then contextualize what's happening now with history like Mm -hmm. we're, we're all history teachers Well, this is true for both online and in-person teaching. Before you do any of this sort of work, you need to first build relationships with your students. Another thing that's really important, and this is for all teachers, not just art teachers, but paying attention to mm-hmm. discipline and right. who is getting called out more often, who is getting you know, reminders about their bodies or their voices or how they're using materials because there's so much, so many disparities between suspensions and things like that. And I think that can definitely happen in the art room too. You have to really like retrain yourself or like think about, okay, what is actually problematic about so-and-so's behavior? Is it actually a problem or is it just not the way that we have been taught to think is okay? Right. Because I think sometimes the default defensive answer can be like, well, some of these kids really are acting out more having behavior problems more often. But I think we really need to look and say, well, is it just that they were talking too loud? Or is it just that they were, you know, moving? 
needing to move their bodies more, whatever it may be, just kind of reframing that. Right. Absolutely. Recognizing when it's a cultural bias versus an actual, you know, like disruptive behavior that's actually a problem, which I think is, is rare. Yeah. You know, and then I was talking about the same thing with another artist recently and the idea that who deems what is appropriate and what is not, what is disruptive and what is not. Definitely. And that's why I think it's important as a class and it can be kind of exhausting to do this at the beginning of the year when you have so many classes, but mm-hmm. as a class trying to set norms for your art class so that you get input from the students. Because if it, every artist is different, like I would prefer a quiet working environment with maybe music or a podcast, but a lot of kids prefer it to be more loud and social, talking to each other, walking around maybe. And so kind of getting their input on that and coming up with an agreement so that they can be held accountable like to each other, not just to one white person as the authority in the room. I wanted to do more. Mm-hmm. So I started doing like just on the, I guess on the side, I started doing these like field trips during the summer because I started thinking a lot about like the the gaps in between and I wanted to like extend I I guess I was trying to see like how far I could push learning and extended from like what was going on in the classroom Mm -hmm. because I don't know I think with like images and things like that you can only do so much if you like just project it or like show students but like actually seeing it in person is like a completely different experience right yeah it totally changes the way the work feels yeah, yeah. And I was also thinking a lot about like, the way I don't know, I was thinking a lot about access and mm-hmm. the way that like I hadn't, I'm gonna be completely honest, like I grew up in LA, but I don't think I went to LACMA until maybe I was like, a junior or senior in high school. Right. I don't, I don't even think I knew what LACMA was. I knew about like the stuff at Expo Park, because I grew up like a couple blocks away. But I I didn't know anything about LACMA. I don't think I found out about MOCA until like a portfolio event that was held there where like my art teacher was like, you need to go to this thing. And then a lot of the things that exist exist now, they didn't then. Right. So I was like thinking about like, okay, like students need to like one, be aware, students and their parents need to be one, like aware that these places exist, but like also I think it's more nuanced than just a being like, hey, come over here, you know? Like we need to figure out ways where folks can feel like welcomed and invited and these spaces that they belong to them, right? Mm-hmm. I've actually realized that when I was in my early 20s and I first started teaching out of grad school, I was teaching in a very kind of traditional way. And even though I had studied so many different artists and my, my graduate program was amazing, I sort of reverted back to teaching the way that I had been taught growing up. Mm-hmm. And after teaching in that way for a few years, I can, my whole perception of teaching, everything just started to shift for me. And I started to become very passionate about teaching about contemporary artists and artists of color and really changing my approach and teaching in a more progressive way, even with how I was interacting with the kids. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting to look back and see, you know, where I started and, and where I'm at now. I want my work to represent all of those facets of being black and brown in America without judgment. And sometimes that stuff 
is beautiful and sometimes it's ugly. Sometimes it's my kid being disrespectful. Sometimes it's my kid rolling her eyes. Sometimes like she's got an attitude. All of those things are just as valid as being the quiet, well-behaved, articulate kid. Mm -hmm. No, sometimes she's big hoop earrings and lip gloss and attitudes and rap music. Like, that's just what it is sometimes. And sometimes it's a cute girl with a puffy ponytail and a white dress Mm -hmm. playing in a field. And those are all, those are all my kids. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) all those parts are my kid and all of those things are going to come together at some point to be a woman in the world Mm -hmm. who is doing whatever it is that she's going to do in the world. And all of those facets are important Mm -hmm. and all of them are part of who they are. Yeah. And so that's what I want people to gather from the work. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, all of these components of my kids are valid mm-hmm. and all of them are going to make them into women who are also valid. Mm-hmm. And all of those things are forever going to be valid. And it's not up for discussion or judgment or scrutiny or any of it because they're whole people. The culture of whiteness in our schools is the culture of preparing people for the American workforce. So one big part of decentering whiteness in your art classroom, I think, is just ignoring that mandate completely. Mm -hmm. Like, don't care if kids are late. Let Mm -hmm. kids turn in late work. Let them be their whole selves in the classroom. Let them speak out of turn. Let them be equal partners in the learning. Let them choose what you should cover in your curriculum this year. Mm -hmm. Just find ways to break any of the expectations in your classroom that feel in the least bit oppressive. Mm -hmm. Not just the content, but also the style and the way you're presenting your teaching and your interactions in the classroom, because we're like swimming in this society that is upholding white supremacy, right? And, And like colonialist values. And so that's like seeping into like our brains or students' brains. And so we, we should be questioning, why do I feel this way? Like, why do I think that? And really, I mean, I have to do it all the time. Like, wait, do I, is that a fact? Or is this like a false narrative that I have just been taught so many times over and over? And so I think that that is a lot of the work I really want to see teachers doing. The biggest part of colonization is that mm. your humanity is, is seen, your humanity is, is known, And it is obvious to all of us, whereas my humanity has to be experienced in order Mm -hmm. for it to be real. And I think Mm -hmm. kids seeing that, it's unfortunate that that's how it has to be, but us African-American teachers, us Latino teachers, teachers who are like, we, minority teachers have to be that and we have to be in these spaces so these kids can see our humanity, Mm -hmm. know that we exist in a way that is not negative and they need to take that on to the next generation and like lead with love. Unlike, mm-hmm. you know, how <laughs> currently we're being led by hate. In order to create an anti-racist environment, you have to actively be anti-racist in your life. Mm-hmm. There isn't a curriculum to follow. There isn't a formula to follow. There isn't a checklist to follow. This work has to be embedded into your everyday life. And it has to be something that you do mm-hmm. because the kids know. I definitely think that teaching has informed 
my art making. I, in my personal work, I really like to try and channel like intuition and like thinking about that childlike approach. And since I was like such a like prolific, that's probably the wrong word, but like voracious drawer as a kid. And Uh I just like made all the time. I really like to like channel that energy. So it's something that when I'm working with kids, I can see throughout the day. And it's sort of like, oh yeah, like that, that is what it looks like to get in that state of flow or to make those like impulsive or intuitive decisions about color or just shape or line and especially teaching the the kids that are in grade five and six and they're a little bit younger and less like inhibited and less concerned about the final product just watching that on a day-to-day basis I find really informs my work. I find myself thinking like, oh yeah, that, that color choice that, you know, one student made or, um, just kind of like spark something for me, just seeing their process and they're just in that childlike, wonderful state. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just like being exposed to art at my quote unquote day job or part-time job is, really influential in what I'm making in my home studio because I'm just surrounded by art all the time and thinking about art and looking at art history. And it's just like, I'm just surrounded and it's just like my whole world. And so then when I go into the studio, it doesn't feel as much like switching over brains, like, okay, like that, that job is over now. Now it's time to do something else. Like it's all flowing into each other and back and forth. I think any teacher will say that they learn so much more from their students than they, you know, Mm -hmm. than they ever thought. And I know I, I feel that way about my students too. Being able to spend so much time around like a bunch of children engaging in art because you realize how much they see everything with like new eyes that they're mm-hmm. seeing so much of this stuff for the first time. And I guess sort of relates to what you were saying about like, you know, something so well that you might like skip steps in instruction. <laughs> yeah, it's like they see so many things fresh. And I do think that maybe hopefully that kind of rubs off on me and I'm able to like I mean I do think that's something that like a lot of artists have in common is like this awe at the world or like Mm -hmm. these things that a lot of people maybe don't notice or that seem really common that artists will be like oh wow interesting and that is like sort of this like childlike vision in a way one of the things that I get the most out of it is I get such a joy watching them create and just mm-hmm. getting into it. I think that's my passion about it. It's just to see them get so involved in it, not realize they're learning stuff. They're just doing. Yeah. I wish I could create art that way uh. without overthinking it. I was very concerned with the product and the end product Mm -hmm. and making sure everything was perfect. Yeah. And when I kind of stepped out of that, I just had, was starting to have so much fun. Yeah. And my work got to be much more like fluid and I was, you know, I would just make tons of things, you know, if I didn't like something, it was like, okay, no big deal. I'm moving on to the next thing. Right. And really just trying to like adopt that spirit that my kid, you know, that I saw my students, mm-hmm. you know, what they, how they work through creative challenges or problems in their work. Yeah. Really, really changed the way I started looking at the problems in my, uh, my studio practice. 
I'm inspired a lot of times by my students in my art making mm-hmm. because of their creativity. I'm always striving for the way that children have creativity and working with kids all day. It just really helps me not take myself so seriously and to remember not to be so hard on myself when making my own artwork. For example, I'm always telling my students it's okay to make mistakes and try to work with them through it on problem solving skills and how to fix a mistake rather than just crumbling up your paper and throwing it away and starting over. Right. So anytime I'm painting now, especially with watercolor, I'm trying to do the same thing. I I always try to like remind myself what I tell the kids all day and tell myself that and try to um, fix my mistakes and keep working through it and keep pushing through. And I've kind of found that a lot with my students work and how I teach them. So it kind of overflows into my own artwork. Right. Sometimes it's really hard to take your own advice. Yeah. And I always (laughs) tell them you're always your hardest critic. My art making helps my teaching, I would say the other way, uh, because I kind of implement what I believe in my teaching. From my personal experience, I think every child is an artist in their own way. And Mm -hmm. if given the right guidance and opportunity, they will discover their creative world, definitely, and experience the Mm -hmm. joy of making art. If we expect them to learn something every day, mm-hmm. you know, and, and follow through with it, that there's no reason why we can't expect the same of us, you know, to be those lifelong learners, you know, even if it's teaching yourself how to knit yeah. or going and you know, just learn something new so your brain can be refreshed. I can see them struggling with the creative process, but know that it's the right struggle. Mm-hmm. I know what they're going through. And I think that helps me to empathize with what they're doing. And even though it's little kids, they still have a vision. And going through that, I think, helps me to see that. And also, I think just, know, you know, when they're working, I'll sit down and work next to them. I'm totally more into the art making process than the final results, even in my own artwork. I love the decorating. I love the building part. But then when it comes out of the kiln and it looks cool, I'm like, cool, but it's done. And I want to move on to like more like the making part. And that's kind of where my teaching also like gets informed by that too. It's to me all about just the making process because that's where you're thinking and you're using skills and critical thinking. When I'm making art, viewing art, I, I really feel the best in the classroom and the most inspired version of myself. The art informs the teaching. The teaching informs the art. I couldn't do one without the other. I'm a big advocate for, for a, a course in, in selling and advertising. <laughs> and and promotion and promoting you know and it's interesting how when we go through art school very often we sort of come out with a i know i did kind of had this this purist mindset of not wanting to reproduce or mass produce and sort of just have everything Mm -hmm. originally you know made right and and Uh so on which is which is fine but not always very practical right so the artist who creates this beautiful painting could sell that painting for a certain sum, right? Mm-hmm. And if he just sold that the painting for that sum and only sold all his original paintings only, then he would probably have a hard time making a living. Right. So the idea of being able to reproduce that original painting in some way 
you know, by having them probably printed, even if it's mm-hmm. a you know, limited edition, you know, that actually helps him to be able to sell, maybe even hold on to the original for a bit longer so he could get a better price for it. Right. So he doesn't have to like sell it off right away to make, you know, to be able to pay his bills and probably <laughs> right. what, you know, what he thinks it's worth. But uh, with the ability to reproduce that original work, even in a limited edition, sort of allows him to be able to sell that painting many times over. Having the physical shop was really great because, you know, people would come in who I had never met before and I got to share what I was creating with them and then they would go tell their people and they'd send them in and that was really wonderful. And also just a a really nice way to have more conversation around what I was making because I also sell a lot on Etsy, which has been great, but I don't get that personal connection. You know, sometimes I'll get a little message from someone about Mm -hmm. something, but getting to just have a conversation with a person and connecting over color or a quote or something, you know, having that relationship, even if it's for two minutes. I love that. The shop was a big thing. And then before that, craft fairs and farmers markets. And then I have been selling, uh, I make greeting cards Mm. from my drawings and illustrations. And I sell those to different shops, which has been really good too. And then Mm -hmm. I use Spoonflower. Do you know about that website? Yes. That's fun. I've been making some fabric from my drawings. And Society6, I use too. But now I feel like those are all kind of existing. Now I've had those for a little while and keep trying to figure out maybe, you know, other things I want to add to them or how well they're working. But now with the new work, I'm starting to think about for the first time entering shows or trying to have an exhibit. You know, that's kind of a new world that I'm going to try. And to be honest, I, I'm like, okay with not selling. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very much more into like, I, when I sell a painting, it's awesome. Like, I love it. And that's great. Yeah. But I love, I also love like trading with other artists and mm-hmm. local artists or, you know, buying one of their works and or selling a work to another artist friend. It's hard. It's hard. I know one of your questions was any advice you would give to, to any artists who are looking for opportunities. Right. So, you know, when I first started, it was really scary and really confusing. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know where, how to get an opportunity. Like, how do I go and vend at a show? For anybody, like, vending is just going to, like, some party and, like, selling your artwork there. Right. So, like, how do I vend at this party? How do I do this, that, and the third? And, you know, it's it's all about community, right? Mm. So, you know, my first step was building my art Instagram. I think getting your art out there in general is, is the first step to opportunity. I know that yeah. I created my art Instagram, and then within two months, I was hit up to do my very first art show. That's awesome. Right. And yeah. so and it was hugely successful, which then created, I mean, mm. so much confidence. And, you know, it's not always going to be successful. There are days where I go to an art show and I sell work or I go to attempt to sell work and I make no money. Mm. And there are times where I go and, you know, I make way more than I thought I would. And it can be validating. It can be you you just can't you can't take it personally when people don't buy your work. Your work's yeah, not for everyone, right? Right. And so, but you know, I I'm at the point I've been doing this, actually pursuing our career for maybe three or four years now. Mm-hmm. And at this point, 
I'm just creating my own opportunities. It's going around asking. Like I, I have all my cards and I have a bunch of art and I just go into like stores and I say, hey, can I paint your wall? And mm. they will either say yes or they will say no. Or I will ask someone if I can be a part of this show. And then you get to a certain point where people start like, you know, you get a flow of work because people are asking you to be a part of the big cultural things happening in your city. So I think I'm very fortunate in that. I think I put in enough work now where I'm very visible and I am being looked at as someone who needs to be a part of this show or a part of this show. So mm-hmm. it's all about the grind. And so it's all about asking. It's all about taking the nose. And then eventually people will start coming to you. How have you managed to sort of juggle all of this, all of the art making, sending off 40 pieces while also teaching? How are you making it work? Planning ahead and planning far, far ahead. Yeah. What I do is I start with the deadline and I work backwards. Very smart. So when's the very last day? Yeah. When's the last day I can ship those and they still get there on time? (laughs) So when I knew that I had to make 40 pieces, I had to think like, how long is this going to take me? And actually it was so sweet. My husband was like, we were talking about, he says, you can do this. He says, you just need to start six months in advance, which I've never worked that far in advance for anything. And when he put it like that, I thought, you know, he's right. So if I make five or 10 extra pieces a month, six months ahead, then I will have them ready and they'll be done in time to take a week to pack them. And then, you know, if something tragic (laughs) happens, you know, there's still time to fix in there. So it was a matter of really planning that. Uh, it kind of ebbs and flows, you know, like mm-hmm. there's moments where I'm I'm really in the studio a lot. And there's moments where I just have to kind of take a step back or take a break or adjust, adjust my, my work, like my studio practice. So yeah, it is what it is. And at first I was like really kind of down about it. Kind of took me a while to mm-hmm. come to terms with that, you know, because like in grad school, I'm sure you know, it's like they just hammer it over over your head like you got to be in their studio uh-huh. all the time like crank and work out and so I still kind of had that mentality and I was just like well, it was just hard to come to terms with that once once May was born and but I'm, I'm okay with that now and you know it's just it is what it is and I know a lot of artist friends who are in the same boat and you know everyone everyone has a different setup or situation and you know yeah if I've learned anything in my life is when you have a plan, inevitably that plan does not happen the way you do. Right. <laughs> and that's okay. You know, I've learned to be a much more flexible thinker and maker and, and human being sort of holding on to that realization that life can change at a moment's notice. I really just can't do mm-hmm. everything. And so I've accepted that sometimes my house is going to be messy. Sometimes my kids are going to watch hours of television. Sometimes they're going to eat cereal for two of the three meals a day. Sometimes I'm not going to get any work done. Sometimes I am not the most amazing wife. Like sometimes I'm just quiet and busy and preoccupied with other things. And all of those things are okay Mm -hmm. because I can't do everything. And if I tried and when I tried to do everything, I was resentful and burnout and things looked cool, but like I was miserable. And so you just can't do everything and no one should try to do everything. Do what you can. And then the other stuff's not going anywhere. When you say no, you allow someone else 
to have that opportunity to grow into that role that is not serving you, but it could serve them. Because if you really want to give your, your own self the opportunity to make art, you, you really do have to give a couple things up because you, you can't do it all. You have to validate your time and it's so hard to validate yeah. your time. I just like plan out every piece of my day. But anytime that I'm making art, time just flies and it never feels like work. Yeah, I feel the same way sometimes. I just get yeah. totally lost in making. Exactly. Yeah. It's a really good feeling. My brother calls it traveling because he's also an artist. Oh. And that when he creates, he feels like he's traveling to wherever it is that he wants to be. If you have a jar and you have only like big rocks and little stones then you have to kind of pick and choose the big rocks first. You put them in the jar yeah. and then all of the little stones fall into place. Oh. And it's a metaphor, but that philosophy is something yeah. I still think about when I'm pr prioritizing my work each day. Yeah, Like what are those things that I really need to get done? And then the things right. that I hope will fall into place. That's yeah. a great way to think about it. Yeah. And thinking about that, what are the big rocks for a lifetime versus mm -hmm. like the bigger thing this week, wanna, this and year. That's, that's a really good point because yeah. sometimes if we focus on short-term wins, yeah, you know, versus long-term goals as an artist, you know, you want to think about what you want to accomplish over like a five a year, longer term, yeah, a yeah. 10 year period. Yeah. I know for me, it's been hard sometimes to prioritize when there's just all these ideas totally shooting out yeah. of my head all the yeah. time and I'm like I want to accomplish this and this and this and sometimes it's almost too much so sitting down and kind of almost meditating on those ideas and saying okay let's write them out and then let's that. choose like which ones are really worthwhile and really exciting and yeah. really could become something yeah I think of yeah. those as like inspired thoughts and like whenever yeah. you have that inspired thought you have to at least write it down yeah, like get it out. Maybe you'll get to come back to it or maybe you'll get to implement it right away. Yeah. You know, but I think as creatives, like those are things that we all, you know, when we have them, it's like really important to notice them and yeah. write them down. I just love the platform that you've created where you are highlighting the equal importance of us as educators and as artists. So often when I am involved in professional development or doing something that is more related to like the art making side of things, it ends up, it's either one or the other. And so having an opportunity to really recognize and value the way that those two parts of our lives intersect and challenge and, and push the other one forward. I, I just think that's a great way to approach it. It's we're one whole person. So even if you have multiple sides of things that you're doing, you can't ever separate them completely. So I just love this approach that you've taken in honoring both, both parts of that experience. All of the episodes that I've listened to, everyone has been, you know, really vulnerable and has opened up about their experience. And I have felt less alone mm -hmm. in every episode. Like, you, you know, there's <sighs> something that connects me to each person. And I'm like, oh, okay, it wasn't just me. Mm. And it just makes me feel more confident in my story and being able to share my story. And so I just want to say thank you to you and to everyone who has shared. Thank you so much for listening. 
As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or Teaching Artist Podcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.